Dr. Howard Hendricks tells of a time when he saw a young reporter interview Bud Wilkinson, who was then this top-ranked coach of the Oklahoma Sooners football team. Well, the reporter enthusiastically asked the coach, he said, Coach Wilkinson, tell us what contribution you think collegiate football has made to the physical fitness of America. Well, the reporter was rather stunned when Wilkinson replied, I don't believe that football has made any contribution to physical fitness in America. What do you mean, asked the reporter. Wilkinson said, I define football as 22 men on the field desperately needing rest and 50,000 people in the stands desperately needing exercise. Now, Dr. Hendricks concluded by saying, what a description of the local church. And sadly, you know, Christianity in America is often a spectator sport. We go to church on Sunday and sit and we watch the pros perform. After all, that's what we pay them to do, isn't it? But um, let me let me tell you, you probably know this because I talk about it a lot here. You know, there is no such distinction between the pros and the laity, as it's often called, in the Bible. In the New Testament, there's no special class of people called the ministers or the clergymen or the priests, but, but rather, the Bible says that every believer in the Lord Jesus is a minister, and every believer in the Lord Jesus is a priest before God. That's why we, that's why we believe in what we call the priesthood of the, of the believer. You know, I was at a uh, function this, this past week for a, uh, a civic group in our, in our county, and uh, I was asked to pray. They said, oh, we have a minister among us, you know, this evening. And, and they asked if I would lead in prayer. And I, before I prayed, I said, well, let me tell you something. I'm not the only minister in this room. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus, then you too are a minister. But in my ministry, I'm also a pastor. And I said, I'll be glad to lead in prayer. And uh, and I led in prayer. In fact, you know, if you're a part of Bacon's Castle, you know that for for many years now, I've corrected all of us over and over and over again when people introduce me as the minister. And I understand what they're saying, but I, I really want to make this distinct, distinction really clear, at least in our own family here, that I am not the minister of the church. I am a pastor, but all of you are ministers. All of us are ministers. Our ministry might be different, but we are all ministers for the Lord for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's that's a driving ambition for me, and that is that every member in the body of Christ, you know, be a minister. Now, that's a hard mindset to change. And, uh, you know, I think I recently told you I read a, a book on Martin Luther, and I realized that that change actually began with Martin Luther, or at least it began in force with Martin Luther and the Reformation. Prior to the Reformation, there was such a break between the clergy and the laity, between the professional Christian or the Christian supported by the church and those who are not, that, that only the clergy, and I'm using those terms, I don't like them, but only the clergy was allowed to take the bread and the wine in communion. And if you weren't clergy, if you weren't, you know, a priest or a monk or something like that, you weren't allowed to drink of the cup, you know, of the Lord's Supper. Now, I'm thankful that in the Reformation we recovered a lot of a lot of truth from the Bible and, and one of the things that we recovered is that we are all equal in Christ. There is no distinction between a vocational servant, a, mo- a vocational minister and a non-vocational minister when it comes to their positions and their worth and what what they do. I'm so glad. I'm glad so glad for that. You are as much a minister 
as I am. In the last two weeks, we had Marshall and Micah fill this desk, and they did so not as professional clergy, but as a doctor and a mason, and they did great. Marshall challenged us to recover our passion. Micah exhorted us to holiness and righteousness and a quest for generational faithfulness. Now, next Sunday, we're going to return to the book of Daniel. We're going to finish our study. But this week, I I want to add a third installment to what they began. And I want to leverage our time together this morning. And what I want to do is I want to press you into service. I want to press you into ministry. And I'm calling my talk today, Serving is Not an Option. Now, let's... uh, Let's call these three messages, the one Marshall preached, the one Micah preached, and the one I'm preaching this morning, let's call these messages, let's give them a title, and let's say July Challenges for the Christian Life. You can find Marshall and Micah's messages on our podcast and our website if you'd like to go back and listen to this this grouping of three messages together. But the Bible is, is really clear that God's desire is for those that love him that they live their lives serving serving others. You know, I don't know that I have a life verse. Uh, in fact, I, I, I never said this is my life verse. But if I had a life verse, it would be Philippians 2, 3 through 4, which says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. And that is the call of the Christ-following life. And I'm going to come back to it in, in just a few moments. But those verses, are that's not an isolated appeal that the Apostle Paul gives us. Peter gives us something similar. In, in his first letter, chapter 4, verse 10, he says, Each of us should use whatever gift he's received to serve others. And then again, Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, that our, says our spiritual gifts are given for the common Good. You know, another favorite verse uh, of many people says that God is actually orchestrating service opportunities for you and me to walk in. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, you know those verses well. For by grace we've been saved through faith, that it's not of ourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of any works, lest we should boast. But the very next verse goes on and says, We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So created for what? Well, you know, Paul says we were created for good works. We're God's workmanship, created for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to walk in them. So what that means is, is that God is God is orchestrating opportunities for us to serve. Now, I'm still responsible to walk in those uh, opportunities. God may set those opportunities up and, and I may choose to not walk in them. He may want me to walk in them. He may lead me to walk in them. And I may choose not to. I, I remember in the Old Testament, you remember um, Mordecai says to his niece, Esther, she's having this opportunity to, she's the wife of Xerxes, the king of Persia. And, uh, and Mordecai, and anyway, the Jews are in peril. And Mordecai is challenging her to go and save the Jews by going and speaking to her husband. And and it's illegal for her to do that. She can lose her life for it. And he says, listen, you know, God is giving you this opportunity and you can choose to walk in it or not. But if you don't walk in it, be assured of this. God's going to use someone else to save his people. So God orchestrates opportunities for you to work and walk in, in those opportunities. But, you know, you are still responsible to do 
as as he's leading you. Now, what I'd like this morning is I'd, I'd like you to see how serving others is to be lived out uh, in our lives. And and what I want to do in order to illustrate that for you is I want to look at at our king, you know, our king, the Lord Jesus. And I want to look at his life as a servant and what he did. And and I want to use him as our example to challenge us to to serve in the way that God wants us to serve. And I'm going to, I'm going to use the continuation, the continuing verses, excuse me, of Philippians chapter 2. So let me just read 5 and 6. Philippians 2, 5 and 6 says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So here we go. There's like four or five things that I want to share with you that Jesus modeled, and and this is what it means when we serve and we live out service in our life. So number one, being a servant means giving up my position for others. In verse six, it says that Jesus was God. The original language says that he had the very same nature as God. In another place, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus is the very image of the invisible God. John said that Jesus was the Word of God and that he was God. Now, in theological circles, the term for this is hypostatic union. Now, I know that's a big word, but what that simply means is that God became one of his creatures, but in doing so, he took on our nature and didn't surrender his old nature. He was still God of very God. He was still the son of man, but he was the son of God. He, he did not compromise either nature. And that's how the church has, has tried to deal with the fact that God became one of his creatures. A, a real down-to-earth way of saying this is that Jesus was 100% man, and he was 100% God. Now, I know you can't be 100% of of one thing and 100% of another. I mean, that's just mathematically and logically not possible. But that's what we have determined, that Jesus becoming one of us, one of his creatures, he, he didn't relinquish his nature as God. Now, the part I want you to notice is that he didn't hold on to his position as God, okay? Was he God? Absolutely. But he didn't hold on to that position. The Bible says he, he emptied himself. He didn't, he didn't grasp that. He let go of that. So although Jesus had a position of all privilege and all power to which his nature as God ent- entitled him, and although he could have exploited that position to dominate his creation, Jesus instead considered his nature as God an opportunity for him to lower himself, to let go of that position, if you would, and serve the creatures that he made. I mean, that is astounding. Instead of using his position to his advantage, he used his position for others, uh, for those who had nothing. He he used it for me, and he used it for, for you. All of the authority and power that was available to Jesus became a channel by which he was serving rather than a conduit by which he was getting things. Now, you and me being servants demands the same. We can't serve unless we're willing to give up our position. Every time I serve you, every time you serve someone else, you are choosing to give up your position to another. 
So I serve you with my time, and I gave up my position to use my time on myself and my own desires. When I choose to serve you with my money or any other resource that I have, I just gave up my position to use that money on myself and on my family or use that resource on on myself or on someone else in my immediate family. Service means surrendering my position of receiving or having so that I might give. Now, that's number one. Number two, being a servant means becoming less so that others can become more. Being a servant means I'm, I'm willing to give up so that you can rise up. In verse 5, it says, Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with a thing to be grasped. And that's giving up his position, right? But, verse 7 says, But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Now, Jesus didn't hold up, didn't hold on to his position, but notice that the text says he actually emptied himself. Now, again, in theological uh, circles, the, the word for that emptying is called the kenosis of Jesus. The kenosis, that's a Greek word. It simply means emptying, and we've transliterated it into English. So we've picked up the Greek word kenosis, and we use that word to speak about how Jesus emptied himself. So there's, there's the question, you know, what did Jesus empty himself of? Now, some have suggested that he emptied himself of his significance. He went from sovereign, that is king, to being a servant of others. And and that is absolutely true. Others say it was glory. He emptied himself of the glory of his heaven and the praise of his angels to the stench of his stable and the demeaning of men. So he gave up glory, the glory of being in heaven and being worshipped, to being born in a a food, I mean, in in an animal in an animal cave, an animal stall, and being laid in a feeding trough for animals. Now, I personally think that the kenosis of Jesus definitely involved both of those things, but I want to say, in my opinion, the kenosis of Jesus was much greater than that. And uh, and here's what I mean by that. I think that Jesus, in taking on our human nature, though not surrendering his divine nature, did himself empty himself of his divine abilities and took on the limitations of our humanity. So he didn't have all power in his uh, in his incarnation, in his becoming. That's another word. Incarnation means God becoming a person. In his becoming a person, he didn't have all power. He didn't know the future or everything. He, he didn't know what everyone was thinking. And he wasn't everyone. By the way, everyone agrees with that. In the kenosis of Jesus, he emptied his himself of his omniscience personally because he was now confined to the creaturely body that was Jesus. Uh, and, and he wasn't outside time anymore. He was in the confines of time like you and I are. But, but he still did many of those things that only God can do. How, how did he do those if he emptied himself of them? Well, I think the Bible is really clear. And the Bible says that Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 10, verse, uh, I think it's verse 38, Luke says that Jesus did whatever he did through the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and so I believe that Jesus did all those things like know the future and know what people were thinking because the Holy Spirit 
was enabling him to do those things in his uh, limited humanity or the limitations that his humanity put on his divine nature, his emptying himself. Now, regardless of of exactly what Jesus let go of and emptied himself of, this is at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. It means to lose our lives, to let go of our lives in order to save it. It means to empty ourselves of self in order to be filled with him and his passion for others. You will not be a servant unless you are willing to let go, unless you are willing to empty yourself of your selfishness and let Jesus fill your life and use you. Now, it's no wonder that so many people find the health and wealth Christianity so attractive because it's all about getting rather than giving. It's all about being served by others and being rich and being popular instead of serving and laying down your life and laying down your resources and laying down your position for others. You know, the health, wealth, and prosperity folks are just all about you making yourself big. And In fact, I've even heard some of them say you, you can become like a little god. And, you know, folks, that's, just, that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus is actually calling you to do. Now, our fallen sinful nature is not interested in being emptied. It wants to be filled. We are not interested in becoming Something or someone less so that others might become more. It it, it runs contrary to our fallen sinful nature to become less so other people can rise up on our lowering ourselves. And uh, if we, if we, oh, lost my train of thought, um, And if we're going to be like Jesus, we must become servants, allowing others to become more at our expense. All right, so if we're going to be like the Lord Jesus in his service and his servant's heart, then first of all, we're going to be a servant. It means giving up our position to others. Secondly, we said it means becoming less so that others can become more. And the third thing that uh, that we want to see from Jesus is that being a servant means being faithful, obedient, uh, whatever the cost. In verse 8, it says, Being found in the appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself to serve us. He lowered himself to become like one of the creatures that he had created. But, but he didn't just become a man. Uh, he became a man, a lowly man, not a powerful man. Jesus could have come as, you know, this great king, but he came as this lowly man, but not just even a lowly man. He, he became a man who submitted himself even to death, which was the penalty of sin against us. Jesus came actually knowing he would die. And uh, again, not just any death, but a torturous death. The early church did not view the cross in the same way we do. They they didn't wear it around their necks. They didn't have it as earrings or or piercings in their body. The cross was this ghastly invention that uh, is a monument to man's inhumanity against man. There wasn't a more painful, cruel way to die. It was fraught with suffering. And yet Jesus suffered this to the nth degree. Now, here's something that I've noticed about us. We're willing to serve as long as it doesn't cost us very much. I'll do this this one time. Uh, 
and I'll give this little bit of money to this cause. But don't take away my TV watching time. And uh, I can't help because that would, you know, eat into my bush gardens money or my motorcycle money or my hunting money or you fill in the blank. We're willing to serve as long as I retain most of my creature comforts. You know, where are the Barnabases of the church of old who gave all their land to help the poor? Or where are the Macedonian Christians who, out of their deep poverty, it says they overflowed in their generosity? Where are the believers who are willing to give their time and their energy to kill kingdom building, to teaching the poor, to investing in our children, to serving the least of le- the least of these you know it just seems like all too often again we're just not willing to serve if there's any cost in it to us if it's not something that i like if it's not something i can do on the side there is nothing that jesus would ask you and me to do that's going to cost us more than it cost him to come and do what he did. We're never going to have to give up more than what he gave up in becoming a creature and a lowly creature and a creature even that would even die, a creature who was God that would die for us. We can never humble, humble ourselves enough. We can never humble ourselves as much as he did. We must, however, I think, be willing to do whatever he asks us, whenever he asks us, and whatever he asks us. For many of us, we've already predetermined the things we won't do. We've set parameters on our service. We, We will serve in such and such a place, or in this sort of way, or on this sort of day, We have convinced ourselves that God would never ask us to do anything that's outside of our our box or our comfort zone. And in reality, we've simply decided that we're not going to listen to Jesus when he asks us to get outside of our, our box of comfort, our box of willingness to serve. We have selective obedience, which is never real obedience. Genuine discipleship in the Bible involves us being obedient to Christ, whatever the cost, whenever the call comes, whatever it is, however it is. There's just no part-time service. There's no part-time disciples. With Jesus, he asked for our everything. He asked for, for all or nothing. He says, if you're not, if you put your hand to the plow and you look back, you're not worthy of him, he says. Now, here's my point. Jesus served in obedience no matter what the cost to him, even the ultimate cost to him. Our service should be obedient service, whatever the cost to us. There is no excuse for us not living a life of serving our king by serving others. Next, our service will be rewarded. I believe this is my last point. Our service will be rewarded. In verse 9, it says, For this reason also... God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because Jesus was obedient, because he humbled himself, because he was willing to pay the price, he was and he would be, the Father said, exalted, and he was exalted. The Father has given to Jesus a name, and it's at his name that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. 
Now, the principle illustrated here is this, that God rewards our humble, obedient service. In other words, when we serve the Lord out of humble obedience to him, you know, God recompense that. I don't think that we should necessarily make serving, you know, the getting the motive of our serving, but nonetheless, God will reward our service. In Proverbs 22, verse 4, he says, the result of humility is the fear of the Lord, along with wealth, honor, and life. Matthew 23, 11 says, the greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. I know so many want to make, you know, make our rewards about what we get in this life. And I don't doubt that God blesses us in this life, but at least I want you to realize that not all of God's rewards are for this life. Some rewards are going to be in the eternal kingdom, that where Jesus is creating a new heaven and a new earth, and, and we're going to be a part of that. In Luke 14, 11 and following, it says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And he also said to the one who had invited him, when, when you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors because they might invite you back. You would be repaid. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor and maimed and lame or blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will listen, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When are you going to be repaid for your service? When are you going to be blessed? When are you going to be rewarded? Jesus says at the resurrection of the righteous. And by the way, you notice that it's not in heaven or even with heaven, that we're going to be rewarded, but at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, at our own resurrection. Another, by the way, when was the last time you invited the poor to dinner? When was the last time, you know, we even did anything for the poor? Well, here's my last point. I said this, the other one was, but there's one more. Being a servant is more about being someone than it is about doing something. Okay, it's being a servant is more about who I am than about that I do this one specific thing in service. I, I don't know that I can sufficiently make this case from the text before us, but let me read it to us in, in its entirety one more time. I'm going to begin with Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's what Paul says. Listen, have this attitude in you that was in Christ Jesus. Notice that he doesn't say, do this thing that Jesus did. 
Oh, oh yeah, you know, we should do the things that Jesus did. In John chapter 13, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And in verse 15, he says, For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Now, listen, I think everybody's pretty clear that he was not perpetually instituting foot washing. Instead, he was telling them that he left them an example of a life of humility, and he is perpetually instituting a heart of humble service. He's calling us to serve others continually. There is no genuine life in Christ that is not at the same time by the work of his Spirit being transformed into the life of Christ. In, in Jesus, we are new creatures. The old is passing away. The new is emerging. If Christ, being God, humbled himself to serve others, then how can we, as his followers, who are not God, also not be growing in that same humble service? If he lived and died for others, how can we not at least live our lives for others, even if we don't die for others? We tend to look for that one big thing we're going to do to serve God or, or maybe even serve others. But in reality, it's not, it's not in that big thing. In reality, it, it happens in the small, everyday, somewhat uneventful occurrences of our lives where we are serving others, where we're washing their feet. For, for Jesus, it was washing their feet. But for us, it's, it's laying down, you know, our lives and, and maybe you know, going over and helping somebody mow their grass or, you know, providing some money for someone who needs some gas money or it's in the little things of life. And and here here's what God tells us. He said, have this attitude that was in my son, have this mindset. He, he had serving others instead of being served. That That was his attitude. That was on his mind. He had this attitude of giving rather than getting, of obeying rather than dominating. And, uh, and that's how it should be in our lives and in a myriad of interpersonal exchanges and encounters every day. So let me ask you, do, how do you treat the checkout person at the grocery store as someone that you're there to serve or someone that you're expecting to serve you? Do we seek to dominate the person on social media who disagrees with us or do we actually seek to listen and understand their position? This heart of service, this being a servant rather than being rather than merely doing service things, will not will be seen, excuse me, it's going to be seen in how we treat and consider others who uh, are we consider to be socially below us. Not, not people that we think to be above us. It's how you treat people you think that are under you. That, that, that's where you're really going to see whether you have an attitude or a heart of service. So, I'm finished. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Are you here to serve or are you here to be served? Is your attitude like the world's where it's all about me or is it about is it like Christ where it's all about others? Are are you going through the motions of service? Are you becoming a true servant at heart? The example has been set for us by the Lord Jesus. The call of Christ is clear. All that remains is for you and me to respond, to make a decision, to make a commitment. Will you choose daily to be like Jesus or will you merely live your life for yourself?